Hello, and welcome back to Lower Decks, a Star Trek Discovery podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and I had a really awesome time teaching this week. One of my classes is doing Ancient Athens right now, so we're spending some time on ethics and political philosophy, and I decided to give my students a debate question that's just ripped straight from the classic TOS episode, The City on the Edge of Forever. Would you let Edith Keeler die if it meant preventing the Nazis from winning the Second World War. And they did a great job with this, and they had an awesome time. And I am, um, I'm proud of myself. Did they uh, come out with a consensus? Oh, yeah, they all let Edith Keeler die. Everyone always lets Edith <laughs> Keeler die. <laughs> and I'm Valerie Hoagland. And I don't know what's been up. I was feeling a little bit sick. I went to bed, and I woke up with a really metallic taste in my mouth. I, I don't know. I think my roommate, like, I don't know what happened while I was sleeping, but it was kind of weird, and I might be a ghost. You should definitely be looking around for some kind of ancient Greek coin then, uh, which, uh, you know, you could use to to help pay the bills at the, the speakeasy and the Jeffries tubes that we run together. That would definitely help out with the budget. Today, we're talking about the fourth episode of season two of Star Trek Discovery, An Obel for Karen, which was written by Alan McElroy and Andrew Colville from a story by Jordan Nardino, Gretchen J. Berg, and Aaron Harberts. And directed by Lee Rose. Oof, that was a mouthful. Yeah, it's a lot of lot of hands uh, on this episode. Last time we talked about our Patreon support, and we've been really happy to have some new people uh, supporting us, and we just wanted to say thank you for that. But we also want to talk about uh, another feature of Patreon besides the various rewards that we give supporters, which is the goals feature. And this is pretty simple, right? It does what it says in the box. It lets us offer to do more stuff if we reach certain crowdfunding and goals. And we're actually coming up on one that is pertinent to Lower Decks. Yes, this one I'm really excited about. I hope we reach this goal because it sounds really fun. We're really close to reaching a goal that would unlock an online video hangout with listeners and us at the end of the season. So you will finally get to see how much hair Glenn has because he talks about it a lot. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it really is how much hair I don't have. Uh, maybe I'll show off the Star Trek <laughs> tattoos as well. Um, and further off, we also have always a goal of covering more Star Trek besides Discovery. So different shows, maybe even a film, animated series, comics, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and that is a little further off, but it is not out of the, the realm of possibility. So we really look forward to being able to do these things uh, in, in the future. And, and and hopefully the online hangout really at the end of this season, I would be super psyched to to do that. Uh, let's let's get on with this episode here. This was uh, there was a lot of stuff happening in this episode, perhaps because there were like 17 people who uh, got together to write it. Uh, <laughs> how did you feel about this one, Valerie, now that we're, we're, we're back away from the, the Klingon stuff and the, the, the Section 31 backdoor pilot? How did you feel about this one? I enjoyed it. I didn't enjoy I still think the two opening episodes of this season uh, out of the four are my favorite. And I could have had the episode be a little bit less dense. But overall, I really enjoyed it. We we have more focus on a lot of characters I love. Jet Reno is back. And I think it should just be the Jet Reno show, to be perfectly honest. And I loved this very classic kind of Trek plot line that we got where the ship's trying to go somewhere and then it runs into something that makes it stuck. And it affects the crew somehow. It's a very classic Trek plot line. I really enjoyed the twists on it. And I enjoyed the familiarity of it as well. Yeah, sadly, it was not actually just a giant hand grabbing them in the middle of space. But you know, I think what they come <laughs> up with looks pretty cool. 
Yeah, I mean, I gotta, maybe it takes this many people to come up with something new after all the times Trek has has done this. Uh, is it a force field? You know, what's going on? Um, are we secretly in some sort of time loop? But uh, but no, we got something new here. And it was linguistic. So I'm pretty happy about it. Did you like the episode, Glenn? I did. I liked a lot of the particulars. The language stuff is fantastic. Uh, and of course, you know, I as soon as I saw what the title for the episode was, I was, you know, giddy and, and on board. And maybe we should actually talk about the title before we get into it, because sometimes we get too into it and forget to circle back and actually talk about the <laughs> title. So let, let's do it right now. What exactly is an oval for Karen, Valerie? Well, Glenn, to answer that question, I'm going to have to define a few terms. So starting with an obol, that's an ancient Greek coin. And Karen, which we did we did a lot of talking about Karen last season because of Emperor Georgiou's ship. But Karen is the ferryman that takes the newly dead down the river Styx into the underworld Hades. And a lot of surviving ancient myth and material culture tells us that there was a cultural practice of placing an obol or coin in the mouth of the deceased in order to pay the fare, pay for the passage down the river Styx into the underworld to pay Karen for his duties as ferryman. Right, because even Karen is not going to just do this, you know, for no money. Like he'd actually like to be sipping jippers on a beach somewhere. But you know, this has got his job. <laughs> I don't know. He's probably saving up all of these coins. And you know, you, you said material evidence, which is true. We do actually have uh, real good evidence that this is a thing that people did. Sometimes we do find these coins in people's mouths uh, when we're excavating graves. But for the most part, actually, it's not really a coin. It's a, a much thinner metallic object that has a, a several one of several different um, special uh, images stamped on it that are like, specifically for Karen, which is really cool, um, except for the part where like he's actually not getting real money. He's getting like Monopoly money, the Greek equivalent of Monopoly money. So <laughs> I don't know if he's actually going to get that beach vacation anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, symbolism is important, whether it is real money or not real money. And, you know, this also signaled to me at the beginning of the episode that, yeah, we're going to get something that has to do with death or dying or the underworld. And because it is truck, discovery complicates this a little bit, but I'm hoping nobody that I care about will actually die. I'm thinking we're going to get some sort of catabasis journey, a journey, a hero's journey to the underworld and back. It's not unlike putting a subway token in as your fare and descending those stairs only to emerge again in the hell that is Times Square. Yes, exactly. And this is a real contrast to the the heaven imagery that we've been getting with the Red Signals and the Red Angel and New Eden uh, and Terra Lysium. So there's, uh, there, there's something going on here where we are maybe getting a, a bit of, uh, of angels and demons here. And here in this episode, it's really the, the demon side of things. So I'm interested to see where this goes. And Glenn, you know, I also wonder if part of this is going to be uh, the the further this descent, the actual catabasis, like into the mycelial network, if there's something about the spores in the mycelial network that is going to play this underworld death role um, compared to this kind of red signal heavenly business. So we'll see how that develops. But now that we've reached uh, book five or, or book six of this uh, epic that is our podcast, depending on which epic you're referencing, I think it's time to take our journey, Glenn. 
Well, I love the way that this episode opens with Pike's executive officer beaming over from the Enterprise to report on the Enterprise's repair status and also to let Pike know that she's managed to get her hands on some classified information concerning Spock's alleged murder and that she wants to to hand that stuff to Pike. And she does that. She says something doesn't add up. We we aren't going to learn what she's got for another scene or two. So I think really the thing to do right here is to talk about this XO who sadly isn't going with us on this journey, at least not in this episode. And this is a character that we have seen on Star Trek before. Valerie, can you tell us who she is? Well, Glenn, answering who this is is a little complicated because it's Majel Barrett, the voice of the computer, Gene Roddenberry's wife, and Rebecca Romaine Stamos. <laughs> it's a lot of people. Um, but the constant repeating of number one uh, feels a little bit unnatural in the dialogue, personally, is to remind us that this is a character that is only known as number one, unnamed in the Star Trek universe, originally played by Majel Barrett, Gene Roddenberry's wife, and then the voice of the computer. Um, She was in the pilot episode as the number one, as we know Riker to be on TNG, the commanding officer under Pike. Um, But she did not have that role, though Majel Barrett would go on to play several other smaller roles. She did not have that role when we got to the quote-unquote real pilot after the cage. So this is a little bit of a throwback to our Captain Pike episode of the original series. Yeah, and of course, you know, I love the way that TOS shaped out, but I think the the loss of this character is really kind of a, a sad point from the the pilot. And when NBC saw the first pilot, the cage that Roddenberry put together, they had a, a pretty long list of things they didn't like and that they wanted him to get rid of, including Captain Pike. But near the top of that list was getting rid of Majel Barrett as number one. And there were two things they did not like about this character. And the, the first of them was simply that they just did not think that viewers were would buy into the idea that the second in command of this spaceship could be a woman, which I think we all agree is ludicrous, even thinking about what people would have believed or enjoyed back in the 60s. Uh, But they also didn't like the way that Roddenberry had written the character. She was not maternal, is really how they saw it. But in particular, she was not bubbly and not exuding with emotion. She was a professional doing a very serious job and doing it very well and very seriously. And so they did not like that at all. And in that first pilot, Spock actually did not have this emotionless, logical uh, characteristic. That wasn't something that Vulcans were going to have originally. In fact, that, which is why in the Menagerie, which recycles some of this material into a canonical original series episode, there are shots of Spock laughing and smiling. And so one of the things that Roddenberry did when he went back to the drawing board was to actually give some of those serious characteristics that this character had had and give them give them to Spock. Yeah, I love it's kind of one of my most favorite, uh, you know, screenshots or images of Leonard Nimoy as Spock is this very first appearance on screen that is so the opposite of what we will know Spock to be such that it's become kind of a rare treasure. Um, and it's him smiling at um, some singing blue plants that are actually just some weird blue felt things on some wire. Um, but they're, you know, one of the first images that I have on, on plants in Star Trek on the Instagram. And it just brings a lot of joy whenever you get Spock smiling. But yeah, it's very interesting because number one was supposed to be to Pike as Spock what 
becomes and is to Kirk. And this, you know, brings up an interesting kind of triad where we have been seeing so far in season two of Discovery that Spock Spock is to Kirk as Spock also is to Pike. So then what does that do with number one? Even though I will say that number one and Pike still seem to have uh, an intimate and and trusted and deeply felt relationship as commanding officers. Right. I, I'll confess, I had actually forgotten about the existence of this character until she beamed over because just the way that Pike has been talking about Spock and some of the things that Sarek said, I, I kind of forgot that Spock is not actually the XO of this ship the way that he basically is for Kirk. Uh, But we see right here that Pike is clearly running the Enterprise in the same way that he's running the Discovery, where he is turning everyone into this this family right this this team that is completely on the same page everyone has everyone else's back even against like, like the institution that they're all a member of and the 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 state that they're actually you know, in the military of and he has this great relationship with number one. And I, I really loved it. I loved this character. Uh, I love that, you know, as soon as she beams over, what she wants to do is go to the galley to get a cheeseburger with habanero sauce. And that they're, they're immediately making jokes about how much engineers love their spaceships, which, you know, makes a nice joke, nice reference to, to Scotty, who is not the chief engineer on the Enterprise yet, but of course will be. Uh, I really, really loved their rapport. Me as well. And I also think that Rebecca Romaine was a perfect cast for this role. There is something about both the color of the uniform coming over from the Enterprise and the hairstyling and the makeup, but also just like her look in general that is so 60s. It does in a way look like she just walked out of TOS, except maybe, you know, we have HGTV now, so it looks a little bit better. Yeah, I have to say the the yellow jacket really pops even more than the the red and the blue. So when it she just showed up on the transporter pad, just really kind of larger than life with this splash of color. I mean, it was pretty exciting. Yeah, it really it still makes me want the TOS uniforms on Discovery, even though I love the costume design on Discovery too. But it's just so fun. Color is fun. But anyway, it's also a great cast because she really looks a lot like Majel Barrett did in in The Cage, in the, the original pilot to TOS. It's kind of a remarkable likeness, which they do such a great job of. They've done this with Amanda as well. So great job casting people, Discovery crew. I really hope that we see her again. I thought she was really an awesome character. I think this is probably just a little bit of a of a tease. We may not ever see her again, but uh, but I hope we do. Maybe maybe next season she'll get her own episode the way that uh, Amanda got her own episode last week. Well, we're going to have to leave her behind for now as we're going to go to the, the Spore Lab where the May mushroom blob thing is in quarantine. And Stamets is pretty excited about the evidence that this May blob is sentient, which he thinks indicates that the mycelial network contains indigenous life. And it's that's going to turn out to be true later in the episode. But this is really fascinating that there's this whole different type of space in which uh, there can be sentient life forms. Of course, we've seen this before in Star Trek. Deep Space Nine has a you know a whole thing about aliens living in a wormhole. Oh, that whole thing that is the premise of the show. Um, yeah, this was really fun. I enjoyed it. Uh, I enjoyed all of our engineering scenes this episode, and I think I'm going to save what I have to say until we get a little bit more into it. 
Yeah, we're going to learn a lot more about this near the near the end of the episode. But really, this scene is is largely about how Tilly is upset about the real May Ahern. She says that May was a, a great friend to her at a time when she really needed that, but that Tilly, you know, she didn't even know that May had died several years ago, it, you know, until basically yesterday. She just found this out. And Tilly doesn't actually say very much about what she's feeling here, but Mary Wiseman I th- really gives us the, the full range of emotions here, from confusion and shock to, uh, to shame, I guess. And it's a wonderful performance. I, I agree. Her performance throughout the whole episode is really stand out. In fact, the acting across the board in this episode is remarkable. Um, just a delight to kind of enter into the universe that they've created. But yeah, Tilly's going through a lot here. And a lot of it is really relatable uh, to have this this kind of guilt or this shame or this confusion after someone dies. But also, this is our first beat, so to speak, of how this creature that well, I guess we'll just continue to call it May has pretty successfully manipulated Tilly. And this will be a question through the through the rest of it. And we get some one wonderful dialogue between Stamets and Jet Reno about whether or not May cares for Tilly or is manipulating Tilly. And what that has done to Tilly's inner psyche it is apparent right from the get-go here. She's very confused. She doesn't know which way to go. She's ruminating. She's anxious. She's sad. You know, it's it's a lot going on for her. Later in the episode, we're going to hear from the May blob again, who's going to say that she picked the form of May Ahern because this was someone who Tilly really, really trusted. But it does almost seem that the idea of May actually is going to have more power over Tilly now that Tilly knows that she's dead, which is not something I think that this this person, this May Blob person, you know, could have foreseen or was was understanding, but it has worked out, I think, in her favor that there's this that, that there's this sense that, that Tilly feels bad for having lost communication, lost touch with May and is I don't know, maybe even like wanting to help the May blob in some way as kind of a stand in for helping the friend that she forgot about. Yeah. And and that's where the relatable part comes in, right? Because on the one hand, I think we've all felt something like that, especially if we've suffered a loss from someone who used to be dear to us and then we lost touch with. But also we've all been 14. And you know, who, how many people from when you were 14 do you keep in touch with or, you know, follow that closely. These these things kind of happen. And every once in a while, Facebook gives us a life update, and then we feel some complicated emotions about it. But one thing that I, I wonder if they're going to do here, or if in a way they've already done, is they're giving uh, Tilly a, a, a character that she has lost. They're giving Tilly grief and and loss in a way to line her up with Stamets and his grief and his loss, such that they are, they're both descending into the underworld, going into the mycelial network, looking to kind of get someone back perhaps, or at least, you know, the underworld can play on their emotions by maybe offering those people to them in some form. And obviously, losing your your partner is different than losing a friend you haven't talked to in a really long time. But it it might give them some sort of parallel journey in a way that they didn't have before. Well, I think that's exactly right. And it really the way that you've just 
pitched this story idea, which is awesome, really is reminiscent of the Greek and Roman stories about Orpheus, who does descend into the underworld to get his dead wife back. And, you know, given that this episode has a classics title and we've had this before, I wonder if that is going to become actually the very specific plot for Stamets's uh, journey this season. Oh, don't think I haven't already thought this through, and I'm very nervous. <laughs> I don't think I can handle that. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, in the Orpheus myth, he he descends into the underworld to to get his wife Eurydice back, um, and he is told, "Okay, fine, you can have her. You know, go ahead. Both of you can walk out, but uh, but Orpheus, you, if you look back at her, you will lose her forever, and she'll she'll never be yours. You can't have her. And of course, something happens where he looks back at her, loses her forever. And if they do that to me, if they make me lose Colbert again, it's going to be real hard. And it doesn't end well for Orpheus, I got to tell you. So it doesn't make me feel good about Stamets either. And I think that we can even predict that in, in Star Trek terms, that what will happen if this is what they do, that Stamets will be faced with some kind of choice where he can have Colbert, but other people will have to be sacrificed for it, or he can let Colbert stay dead and save the day, save his other people. Uh, it turns out maybe that's actually the exact plot of whether or not Kirk will let Edith Keeler die as well, I suppose. So, uh, you know, it's all been done before in Trek. But, well, let's let's not uh, let's not get ahead of ourselves and write too much more fan fiction about what's to come. Uh, let's get into the, the next scene where our team is assembled in the ready room to talk about the Red Angel business. But nothing they say there really matters to the plot. This is really all just to let us know that Saru has a cold. Uh, of course, it's it's not a cold, and we're going to learn more about that later. I love this ready room scene. Ugh, a real, real ready room scene. These characters are really kind of coming into their own. We're getting more of them. Linus is a main cast member now. But uh, but this was really fun. It was fun to see all the people around the table in this very classic Trek fashion. Though, was Pike at his desk the whole time? And why was Nan creepily standing to the side? So I do think that Pike was at his desk the whole time, because when the team leaves, everyone except Burnham, she and Pike have a conversation. And I don't think it's because Pike slipped in while everyone was leaving. So I think- Why was Pike at the table? That was weird. Well, that's what I'm saying. I think he's at his desk and Nan is standing up. So I think maybe there just aren't enough chairs. <laughs> okay. It's just like a holdover from Lorca still. They're waiting for those to come through. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He ordered like 20 chairs, but they could only bring eight. So, you know, he's 12 <laughs> short. So some people have to stand, but he's got the desk, you know. I don't know. I I mean, gosh, what a small ready room. There's no space for a bigger table or anything. I mean, half that ready room is just empty space. Come on, guys. Yeah, right. As we've said, that ready room, bigger than any apartment we've ever lived in. <laughs> All right. Well, the, the, this team does leave, everyone except for Burnham, who does stick around to talk with Pike. And here's where we learn that what number one brought to Pike was the, the warp signature of Spock's shuttle. And what that means is that they'll be able to track Spock and in fact, they're going to be able to catch up with him in a few hours. And after the events with Amanda in the previous episode, Burnham actually now wants to recuse herself from this whole Spock situation because she worries that she'll actually just make things worse for him, especially if he really is suffering from the type of, of, of mental health conditions that were described by the doctors on that videotape. Pike disagrees, but uh, we don't actually have time for this because the ship comes to a jarring halt. Uh, but we'll get we'll get more about that uh, in just a minute. 
Yeah, Glenn, before we jump into the plot and, and follow this along, there were two little things that, that might be worth mentioning, especially given uh, the due that we have paid them in, in previous podcasts. So the first one is our first little joke about language, which which we got some of last episode, too. But Linus sitting at, at the table, I guess, has some sort of universal translator malfunction, which is, you know, a little bit of foreshadowing, maybe, for what's about to happen. But it's a nice little reminder that a universal translator is is being used on this ship though it is confusing because earlier in the season we see burnham interact with linus and it doesn't seem like he's being translated it seems like burnham just you know can understand his language even though other people in the elevator can't so i'm a little bit confused about that Glenn, if you have any suggestions. The other thing is that we had some more retconning here with the holophone business, which, Glenn, I thought you might want to touch on, given uh, how you expressed yourself last episode. Yeah, well, I do think that I, I I got it all off my chest last episode, but there is more retconning happening here when Pike and number one are, are having their conversation about what's wrong with the Enterprise. And it turns out that maybe what's wrong with the Enterprise is that the newish technology of the hollow phone is interfering with all the systems and breaking it. So Pike wants it to be completely removed. And I think we're supposed to infer that this is going to turn out to be uh, a problem on all sorts of ships. And so Starfleet's just going to remove the hollow phone technology. Um, I'm kind of exhausted talking about all of the, the retconning and the kind of caving to the complaints of, of naysayers last season. But, uh, but there it is. I'm happy to just be done with that and get that behind us as quickly as possible. Uh, but I will happily take your bait and talk about the Universal Translator because I don't have a solution to that either. Uh, you know, Maybe it was something to do with him having a cold that the Universal Translator wasn't picking him up uh, properly. But right, the idea here, what we, what we learn about the Universal Translator in this episode, which I think is very cool, is that basically every room on the ship just kind of has one in a kind of like speaker system that is listening to everything everybody says. And translating it for everybody. Anyone who is not speaking Earth English or Federation Standard, depending on on what we're calling it, we've heard it several different ways now. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, I am excited to talk about what happens with the Universal Translator uh, later on in in the episode because it's super fun. But but just wanted to point that out that it was a little bit of a question mark inconsistency. But you know, it's interesting because if if they weren't showing signs, if the showrunners weren't showing signs of trying so hard to fix certain inconsistencies, I would be totally fine letting it all go. It's this like attempt to try to fix all of them while not necessarily getting all of them that is causing a little bit of tension for me. And and this gets to your point, Glenn, of like, they're trying to respond to certain things. But you know, Trek is just like this. Trek has inconsistencies. It, Trek has Trek no babble. Trek has weird things that exist only to serve a plot point of one episode. And, and usually we're pretty okay with that. Yeah, I just don't think it's necessary. And then, you know, if they're going to be trying to retcon things that they did last season because people on Twitter were complaining about it, then are they going to have to retcon stuff in the third season that they were doing this season? It just seems like a bad precedent to set. Uh, but I think we can we can leave that behind us now because we need to go to the bridge to see what has caused the ship to stop going. And it turns out that they've been trapped in some kind of stasis field and there's a glowing lava sphere in front of them. Not a big giant hand, but it did look real cool. And when we come back from the the title sequence, we learn that this sphere is massive. It is 5 
100 kilometers in diameter. And it is also really, really old. It is 100,000 years old. And on top of all of that, it's organic. It's made of organic material. And so maybe it's also alive. Yeah, and they never really solved this question. It's like organic and inorganic, but that's fine. Again, I'm used to having weird Trek mysteries, and I think this is really fun, and and I love this. I love that we're stopped in our tracks, and we have to solve a mystery, and something really crazy is going to happen. Um, I do think it's interesting that it's a sphere. Um, that, I think, threw me off for a little bit, that, like, was this somehow connected to the red signals or something? Like, I, that, I was waiting for that shoe to drop, which which it doesn't. But I don't know if that threw you off, too, Glenn. Right. There there seems to be a lot of just kind of random stuff in space that the ship keeps encountering, and not all of it is related uh, to, to the other phenomena that they that they find out there. I mean, this is what Star Trek does, right? Space is so vast as to, to be near infinite, yet there seems to be something sort of, you know, every every, every square foot of it when, when, uh, when our heroes are underway. I'm just glad Q didn't show up because I was also waiting for that to happen, and I'm really glad it didn't. Yeah, I think we're all a little bit nervous about whether or not the Q continuum is going to show up with this this red signal business, but uh, you know we'll we'll find out soon enough, I suppose. Something that I think is really awesome about this setup is that while they're having this conversation about what this sphere is like, all of a sudden everybody is speaking Klingon, and they just kind of really smoothly transition uh, to that. With and we get some subtitles, and this problem then gets worse as people begin speaking a variety of languages, and even the screens are no longer in their default language. The the scene was really funny. We get a great Tower of Babel joke. And I really enjoyed, and I assume you did too, Valerie, I really enjoyed trying to pick out all of the languages that people were speaking. But I also just marveled at how this was done, you know, technically from an actual filmmaking standpoint. Oh, this is probably, you know, one of my favorite scenes in Trek now. It was just like, it, you know, it, it ticked all of, of my boxes. I have some questions about how it was working. Like, this was my reading of it, which is that characters were actually actually speaking whatever their language was, like their native language. So for a lot of them, that would be English. And then what was what appeared to be coming out of their mouths to other people was another language. Um, does that sound right to you, Glenn? Yes, I think that's exactly what's happening. Now, this does really raise the question of what is the relationship between the universal translator and your eardrum that you can only hear the thing that the computer is telling you to hear and not the actual sound coming out of people's mouths. Uh, I don't want to get bogged down in that. I think that's, <laughs> that just leads to uh, to madness if we if we do that. But yeah, uh, yeah, it, it may not make a whole lot of sense, but it was still delightful. Yeah, because the other way of reading it is that somehow they are being uh, tricked into momentarily being able to speak these other languages, which is also kind of fun. I love when when Detmer uh, says something, it goes, is that Arabic? You know, like they're having, they can hear themselves doing it too. Um, and it is also confusing them. And I think Pike starts in French, and I'm pretty sure he's not French, right? So that's our first clue that that, you know, these aren't necessarily people's native languages. But Glenn, I don't know how many of the languages spoken on screen you are, you know, familiar with as in having studied. Um, I will say that it was a, a little bit hard for me once Burnham says, oh, no, I think it's actually Nan who says something in Italian. And I was like, oh, no, now I know it's not good. 
<laughs> like when I heard a language that I knew, I was like, oh, the actor's actually not doing that great of a job with it, which broke the facade for me for a little bit. I, I have a feeling that if if we knew Arabic uh, better, we would be like, huh, maybe not the best Arabic I've ever heard. But I think I'm being a little nitpicky. Yeah, that's funny. I, you know, I am, am passable in, in spoken French sometimes, and I, I didn't have any problems with, with Pike's pronunciation. Also, the Spanish that Burnham was speaking. Uh, my wife, Elizabeth, does Arabic, and she didn't complain about it either. But maybe I think we were actually maybe a little still fixated about the holophone business at this point. Actually, So <laughs> we may just not have had this conversation. I, so I'll check in with her. But overall, it was really fun. And like, kudos to these actors who don't know these languages and, you know, probably got a small amount of time to do this on air. So, you know, they did a great job. I'm not trying to insult them at all. It just broke the fun a little bit for me. But also part of the fun was trying to pick out where there was a language that I knew something about or even trying to identify what languages were happening um, without looking at the subtitles. And I was, of course, happy that Italian made it into the mix, especially because it's not a language that's spoken very many places. So uh, it didn't have to be a top choice. Right, exactly. It's a minuscule percentage of the uh, the Federation population actually speaks Italian as a as a native language. Well, uh, Saru comes in and, and fixes this problem because he actually knows ninety four of the Federation languages. And right, the problem here is that the Universal Translator has been hit with a, a virus, and that computer virus is going to spread to other systems, and so they're going to need to get to work to contain that virus, and then also get to work to repair the damage so that they can get out of this stasis field. The really consequential and perhaps even more interesting thing is that all of the computer systems have been, you know, modified into different languages. So nobody can really use them without Saru's help because they're not just speaking Arabic. The console is now in Arabic. Though I will point out that in several other Trek episodes, people can make completely alien uh, language consoles work even when they have completely different alphabets with you know surprising accuracy and that's all uh, yeah i'm gonna say something about it and that's always a stretch i think that's something that always befuddles viewers but we just have to suspend our disbelief but maybe you know if i want to try to retcon it i'll say it's actually more difficult to look at your screen that you're familiar with and have it look different than it is to just go to a strange screen knowing that it's going to be strange and having to figure it out uh, you know i don't know if it's much of a defense but but i'll, I'll try no, that's fair. And it's a very minor point. But yes, Saru in this episode is amazing. But Saru in this role is super cool. I love him coming in and giving us a value of the humanities lecture. Um, I feel like this should be part of a presentation to like the dean of many colleges about how we shouldn't cut language programs. <laughs> Yeah, this is why we're actually not allowed to make those presentations. It would just be a Star Trek <laughs> clip show about why the humanities are so valuable. <laughs> All right, well, we can leave this scene behind and, and get to the, the Spore Lab, where the chief engineer has sent Jet Reno to firewall off the critical propulsion systems. And uh, there's some awesomeness here. One, there really is a chief engineer somewhere on the ship, so that's cool. Maybe we'll meet that character someday. Uh, but two, and maybe more importantly, uh, Jet Reno is still here. This is awesome. I know. You know what I love most about Jet Reno? And just so that I warn you, I'm going to say that a lot. And it's going to be a different thing every time. <laughs> um, but what I love most about Jet Reno right this second is that her jacket is always unzipped. It really has an effect of the costuming. That she's the casual, doesn't care one. 
Oh, yeah. And she super doesn't care about rules or decorum at all. And I love the the little spat that she and Stamets get into here immediately. That's really just about whose toys are better, which is just <laughs> it's just it's just great. Uh, though I will say this, this does turn into Stamets monologuing about how dependency on uh, dilithium crystals is bad for the environment, bad for people, bad for geopolitics. I, I didn't maybe love this, though it's going to turn out to actually be relevant in, in Act 3. Oh, I did like it. I mean, I, yeah, it is a little like luxury and, and preachy in a way, but that's part of what I like about Star Trek is that it cares about the things that are important and it calls them out and it tries to be contemporary. And I don't know what temperature it is in Philly right now, but it's a strangely warm temperature here in New York. So, you know, pretty apt, I think, and and, and a good thematic thing to, to be reminded of. But it was also really fun just, yeah, to see them play off of each other. And we haven't seen cranky Stamets in a while. He was like our, our first example of Stamets was cranky monologuing Stamets. And I'm glad to have him back a little bit. And their sparring, their verbal sparring is not not going away. And I really hope that we get to see more and more of them together. And, you know, if that's not possible, I hope that we just get some get some moments where uh, where Jet Reno is doing the uh, the stand up act on, uh, I don't know, stage night or something in the in the galley that when the discovery has off time. Yeah, I mean, that's better than, I don't know, Riker's saxophone playing or Data reading a poem about his cat. So, you know, we've had more boring 10 forward scenes than that. It's a trombone, Hoagland. It's not a saxophone. How dare you? (laughs) I can see him playing a saxophone, though, right? Oh, I think he can he can play all the horns. That's that's my that's my belief. All right. Well, this conversation also is interrupted by some kind of jarring physical thing. And and this time it's, I don't know, an electronic pulse or something like that. It doesn't really matter what it is. The systems are overloaded with power and the whole ship will break, basically, if Reno, Stamets and Tilly don't do something about it right now, right here. And we get a a really fun, actually, surprisingly fun mashup of Trechnobabble and MacGyvering here to solve this problem. And in the process, you know, some hilarity ensues. Tilly's hair goes awesome. And uh, Reno gets knocked out and dreams about playing drums with Prince. Uh, but then also something serious happens, which is that the May blob thing has uh, gotten out of its quarantine cell. And just as we're all looking around for it, it gets on Tilly and won't let go. Yeah, this May Blob thing is terrifying in its sneakiness. This is like all the scenes in engineering this episode could come straight out of a horror movie, honestly. Um, But like a campy one with nice comedy. Yes, exactly. It is is basically uh, like a zombie that's happening here, right? This thing that's trying to to possess you or something like that. Yeah, it's really it's really quite scary, uh, but also funny. But I, I mean, I was really reminded here of the TNG episode "Skin of Evil." This is the episode in which Tasha Yar dies very early in in the first season of that show, where the the villain is just uh, an oil slick and. Patrick Stewart famously was maybe not on board with being an actor on this show just yet. And and famously has been recorded as saying something like 17 years with the Royal Shakespeare Company. And I'm here talking to an oil slick on a soundstage. Uh, And that seems kind of like what these actors are having to do in this in these scenes as well. I wonder what's harder. Maybe any actors um, or former actors listening can come to the forums and let us know. But I wonder what's harder acting at nothing 
because it's just going to be put in with CGI later or, you know, put on the screen screen or something. So like, you know, monologuing at nothing or monologuing at a man in a garbage bag covered in oil. (laughs) Oh, I can't wait for us to actually cover that episode someday. (laughs) Well, let's go to sick bay now and and, uh, check in on Saru, who is really messed up. And it is not just a cold. What is wrong with him is actually a Kelpian-specific condition called the Vaharai. And we've seen this before in The Brightest Star, which was the the Saru-focused short trek episode. And this condition signals the the time of life when Kelpians are ready to be called for slaughter by the Ba'ul. And if you don't get called by the Ba'ul, you end up going mad and dying anyway. And so this condition is terminal. And what this means is Saru is going to die. Yes, Glenn, this is the part of our podcast where if I had any musical talent, I would start singing um, Amic Time to the tune of Hammer Time. Um, But I'm going to spare everybody that. But uh, this this had some Amic Time vibes going on. Did you get those too? (laughs) All right, Hoagland. I know that you're doing this for the meter, but it is Amuck Time, which is, of course, one of, I think, everybody's favorite original series episodes. Uh, This is the one in which Spock reveals that he also has a very secretive, species-specific medical condition and is going to die unless we do something about it. Uh, There's actually quite a bit of Spock uh, dying, Spock sacrificing himself going on on with Saru here, but it did not feel trite or repetitive or even tropey to me. I really love Saru's story in this episode. Thank you for respecting my rhythm, Glenn. That is what I was going for. But yeah, a lot of Ponfar vibes. Um, Saru is not going to end up needing to mate with someone in order to stay alive. We're going to get another plot point. But um, I agree. It didn't. I didn't make the reference um, to Ponfar to say that it felt trite or tropey at all. Um, but just to tie it into other Trek themes, I love it when they bring in these plot points and they are able to do them in new ways, which so far season two of discovery is doing a great job of across the board and you know this whole story arc with saru is really gonna pull up my heartstrings well and we learned some stuff here about kelpians and and their planet kaminar also which i do want to talk about because we have been trying to sort of do the work of being historians or anthropologists trying to understand this species and this planet from the limited information that we've gotten on screen. And way back in the series premiere, we learned that there were two sentient species on Kaminar, a predator species and a prey species. And then in The Brightest Star, the predators who come to harvest the Kelpians are doing that in a ship up in the sky. And and ship is the word that is used. And so we inferred that this meant a spaceship because it wasn't called a plane or you know something like that and that the baul were not actually indigenous to kaminar but now in this scene we're back to using the language of two indigenous species so i guess that the baul do also live on kaminar and that these aren't starships or at least not interstellar spaceships right that they're using that it is something more like an airplane or uh, a space shuttle or something like this and so this solves a real problem that i had with the brightest star which was that the federation wasn't doing anything to protect the kelpians from being eaten or enslaved by another spacefaring civilization so i was glad for this clarification if it really was clarification there's there's one more thing that we need to to do before we leave sick bay and and which is just to say that the characters are having a a conversation about what the sphere's intentions are and how to get the ship back online so they can get out of here and you know get after Spock. And Saru has some ideas and he wants to see them through. And we get 
a great line from him, right? Where he says, I'm dying, but I'm not dead yet. And I love that he wants to keep helping even though he's dying, that he's going to use his last energy to help get the ship out of danger, which is also a very Spock thing to do. So Burnham and Saru, they go off to, I don't know, some lab somewhere. It's not clear where on the ship they are, but they're trying to fix the ship. And now they're going to have a a pretty intense conversation. Saru is, I don't know, ashamed. Maybe that's not quite the word that he uses, but he is having some powerful emotions about the fact that he comes from a species that submits. Well, Burnham has had to fight for her next breath almost her whole life. And Saru goes on to say that he hides by nature. And here's where he brings up this this business with the, the languages, right? Saying that he's learned 94 languages, but he never wanted to teach anyone Kelpian, anyone his own language, because he wanted to keep his cultural identity as, as a private matter, almost as a secret, so that people wouldn't know things uh, about him. Or so that people wouldn't find out things about him that, that he felt were shameful or that he worried would be perceived as shameful. And as the episode goes on, we're going to find out through through the dialogue with Burnham that exactly the thing that he's afraid of being shamed for or being perceived as weak about is actually the very thing that makes him the most unique, his ability to be so empathetic, right? It's kind of your classic story of how what you perceive to be your vulnerability is actually your greatest strength. And I'm excited to see where Saru goes from here now that he does realize that these things are what he has to offer to the team. And they're what makes him useful and not just useful, but but awesome, make him a great member of this team and a valuable part of this family. And we get a real touching moment here from Saru in this conversation where he says that he's kept a detailed account of his life since he's joined Starfleet, and he wants Burnham to officially catalog his journal so that when the Prime Directive or General Order Number 1, when that no longer applies to Kelpians, the the Kelpians will be able to learn about Saru and learn about his journey. And this is one of the major themes of the episode, right? This desire not to be forgotten, but also a desire to pass on what we've learned, uh, to pass that on to others in order to benefit them. And so even here as Saru is like dealing with the fact that he's going to die, you know, in like 10 minutes or something, he's thinking about how he can be a help to other people. I know. I love, I mean, the line here probably that in the episode kind of hit me the hardest is when Saru, you know, uh, turns to us and says, I might be dying, but I am certainly not dead. And like, whoa, I want to be that cool. <laughs> it is a pretty heroic thing to say, but uh, I hope that we never actually find ourselves in a situation where either of us is having to say lines uh, that that heroic. Well, let's let's head to the, the bridge where we just get a real brief scene that's really just to let us know that Spock is getting away and that the Discovery still can't leave this sphere. We're still trapped in place. Uh, we move through this pretty quickly. That's really all that scene is for. And now we just go to the spore lab where stuff is actually happening. Tilly is in a quarantine cell and the the May blob that is attached to her now is secreting chemicals into her bloodstream in order to keep her calm or maybe to keep her docile. It's, it's not clear. There's different schools of thought on this problem. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's pumping her with psilocybin, um, which most people know as like mushrooms or, you know, a hallucinogenics, which is why they make a fun joke about being on a bad trip here. But but yeah, this is not the 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 last time people are going to get accidentally high in this episode. And it's all pretty scary, actually. 
Yeah, the the filming of that scene is is real weird. I, I can't. Yeah, I'm excited to to talk about that right now. Stamets has a Trekno babble way to talk to the May Blob in order to to find out what it wants. And Burnham is here in this scene too. Or really, she's she's just outside the door and hearing this, hearing Stamets thinking about what they need to do to solve their problem, the kind of B-plot of this episode, uh, she realizes that this is also the solution to the problem that she and Saru are working on. And so uh, she runs back to Saru because they need to find out what the sphere wants. And Burnham now pitches the communication idea to Saru, who picks it up and really runs with it because he can see ultraviolet light, which is just a special thing that Kelpians can do that most other species can't. Because he can do that, Saru figures out that the sphere is using these light fluctuations as a a language, but that they've been unable to even realize it, right? He's the only person who could have. And on top of that, Saru has an empathic connection with the sphere, and he understands now that the sphere is dying, and that this connection with this dying creature is what has triggered the Varahai in him, is triggering this this condition. Yeah, I loved this. I thought this was fascinating and, and pretty plausible, you know, um, I think a lot of people have experienced something like maybe they they watch a movie or something where the characters have accents. I remember uh, this happening to me when I saw Clueless in theaters, um, although <laughs> I'm aging myself here. It's that I walked out talking with this Valley Girl accent and wondering what was wrong with me. But there's a lot of research to show that that's how empathy works. Kind of the more empathetic you are, the more you absorb and take on and kind of mirror the characteristics of the people that you care about and are interacting with. So this is just that to to, to the extreme, and I, I thought it was pretty cool. It was, and of course, this is this is more about Saru's unique qualities as a Kelpian, or his special qualities as a Kelpian. You know, coming to the rescue, saving the day here. He's the only person who could have solved this problem because of his empathy, also because of the ultraviolet light scene thing that his eyes can do, and also just because he's really, really smart. Yeah, and because of his language skills, right? So this is really just Saru as star of this episode. Yeah, and I think it's really awesome. I I just want to throw out one thing here as well that may be totally wrong, but something that occurred to me is that we we also saw a, a kind of light beacon in the brightest star being used in re- conjunction with the the calling, and I actually wondered if that that beacon that the Ba'ul were using was actually something that, that that somehow actually triggers this process in them, and that maybe that's the same thing that is happening here with this sphere? I think that's certainly possible, but I, I have a different theory about, you know, what is going on with Saru's illness and what's triggered it that maybe I'll leave in, until we, we get to that part of the episode. But I hadn't thought about that. I'll give it some consideration. All right, well, awesome. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing what you think is happening here. We're in Act 3 now, and very much like the last episode, this one just really starts to jump around between scenes. Like, sometimes we're in a scene just to get two lines. So I'm just going to do the the last bit of the episode by storyline rather than by scene. And I want to handle the Saru story first and then get back to the Tilly story, because that's kind of the cliffhanger that we're going to end on. So on the bridge, Pike is getting ready to shoot up the sphere, like to blow it up real good. But... Saru and Burnham arrive just in time to explain about the whole communications thing. And there is, of course, a quandary here, because if they don't just blow up the sphere and get out of here, then they will lose Spock's warp signature. 
But Saru explains that the sphere wants to tell Discovery its story so that it won't be forgotten when it dies. And Burnham reminds Pike that they are a science vessel after all, and that there are they are explorers. Yeah, this, there were some extended pleas uh, on you know on behalf of of the sphere, which is very in line with Trek, but I also thought was pretty interesting because, you know, we are assuming a lot about the intentions of this thing and personifying it in in a lot of ways. But it's pretty cool to see this continued respect for all forms of life. That once they figure out that they're dealing with something that is, I guess, semi at least sentient and has some sort of intention, typically this hinges on whether or not something is trying to communicate. They they switch gears and they have respect for it, which typically in and of itself is enough, um, even if you're not on a science vessel. But Pike here is worried about Spock, right? They're going after Spock to help protect him from getting arrested and you know, on what they think is going to be unjustly. But he's also got this mission with the, the red signal business, which which Spock is really wrapped up in. So Pike has these other concerns. But even with that, he pretty quickly decides that they have to help this fear. And I, I like this line. He says that his oath and his conscience demand this of him. And then they just essentially download a hundred thousand years worth of data from this sphere, which I think is really cool. And as soon as they're done with this, the sphere dies in an explosion like it it explodes and uh, this explosion should have destroyed discovery but the sphere's last action was to use i don't know some physics to save the ship (laughs) yes some physics is right something about an inverse something something field i don't know uh reminded me of your inverse ninja law from from last episode (laughs) but you know i still don't necessarily think that your saru light theory is uh is how i was reading the episode or my interpretation of it but it I do wonder if you think that uh, the burst of light that is commented by by several characters on the bridge that the burst of light is like music, it's so beautiful, if that had any sort of like reverse effects on Saru, if you thought the original light had some sort of activating effects. Oh, no, I don't think so at all. And we'll, we'll find out what's going on with Saru in a little bit. So yeah, no, I don't think so. I think that's probably a hole in my my uh, my reading of, of the light in the brightest star as well. So yeah, I think probably totally wrong there. Well, now that the ship is out of danger, Saru wants to go to his quarters and die in private. And we get a really dramatic series of reaction shots from the bridge crew here. And then as he and Burnham get into the turbo lift, we get a few bars of the TOS theme music playing slowly and, and lowly like a, like a funeral dirge. And, you know, the creative, the creative team here tried pretty hard to convince us that Saru was actually going to die. At this point, I wasn't on board. I did not expect that he might die, but I, they tricked me at some point in the next scene. I was going to ask if they tricked you because, yeah, they really tricked me. It was the perfect storm of trickiness because they have killed so many people on this show that I didn't think that would be killed, that the typical rules that are in place uh, for who gets to die on a Star Trek show have just been thrown out the window. Um, and his death was extended, right? It it just drags on and on the scene that we're about to get, which is beautiful, is also just heartbreakingly long. And by the end of it, I I had succumbed to my nervousness. 
I even exclaimed out loud, wait, is Saru really going to die here? And then I, I was really tempted to just hop on my phone and start checking out to see if Doug Jones has taken some other role and some other thing. Like it really, it really did get to me. They did an excellent job with this. Well, this, this not really going to die scene in Saru's quarters, as we have said, is it's super emotional. But before we actually get into what's going on between Burnham and Saru, I want to talk about the visuals here. And oh the my first gosh. thing to say, right, <laughs> the first thing to say is Saru's room is basically a greenhouse. Oh my god, I love it. It's now it is. Yes, I'm going to go to in the, and then the magical time of my life where I have a ton of money and can do things like this. I'm going to find an interior designer and be like, give me this, please. Um, right. This is basically the plants in Star Trek headquarters. I know. I know. It's so great. I am now, you know, watching all Trek with an eye for plants, uh, which is very fun. But glad that even though Discovery doesn't have a lot of away episodes, which is where we get a lot of plants most of the time, that I could just go back to Saru's room. How peaceful and relaxing is that place and also what a tribute to his sister right i think that all of the greenery in there is a tribute to serana yes what a absolutely a beautiful sentiment to have these these special flowers and it does say something about saru as a person but also maybe kelpians in general they're they're, they're, they're at least the culture of of saru's village that he just really needs this greenery around him where you know we see other people just they're just living in the kind of metal and plastic quarters that they have on the ship but Saru has to to have all of this green in there and I that really helps me appreciate who he is that he he has to even in the coldness of space be surrounded by a variety of other living creatures yeah uh Saru's ready room is now my favorite ready room I know it's not technically a ready room but I'm picturing it I'm getting ready for when you, you're right, someday you will be the captain of your own starship. And this is what your ready room will be like. Well, the so the room is cool. And it did really capture my attention. But we also should mention that uh, Saru doesn't have a shirt on. I know. <laughs> he looks real cool, though. Like the makeup is awesome. I was kind of distracted by how awesome it was. Like I was looking at it and trying to figure out how it was done, if it was CGI, if it was practical. I'm pretty sure it was practical. Uh, but I was really interested in the the movements and how it it did just look like that was his body and not makeup. Very impressive. And I, I agree. I don't think it was CGI, which is something I love about this show, that they are using hands-on effects, um, practical effects. And I always think that, that that adds something special to a show. And something else that I really did like about the, the shirtlessness here is that some of this is because of developments in uh, the ability to do makeup. Some of it's about budget. But Discovery does a great job of sticking with the, hey, everyone is a, a, a biped, humanoid, even the aliens. They, they The way that Trek does, Discovery sticks with that, but is much better at making these aliens actually seem alien, seem strange, seem non-human. And I love it. Yeah, it definitely makes me think of characters like Dax, who is just identical to a human, but has some leopard spots, or like Phlox, who we actually see shirtless a lot on Enterprise. We see everybody shirtless a lot on Enterprise. And he's just got like two kind of stripes painted down the middle of him. You know, it's usually doesn't go that far. And this really, I think, serves the the story and serves really the purpose of track here, which is always to be telling us that just because people don't look like us doesn't mean they're not people. And I think this really is really helpful. I think the shirtlessness also adds an intimacy to this scene 
right? He's privately in his quarters, uh, disrobed. I assume maybe not wearing a shirt is has something to do with the the death ritual that he's about to to try to undertake. Um, but it really adds a power of intimacy to the scene. Right. Well, I think that's a good note on which to to get to the crying part of the scene, which, you know, crying, it's always my favorite thing. I'm on record with saying that before. And what's happening here is that Saru wants Burnham to euthanize him before the, the pain and the madness of this condition overtakes him. And Burnham is going to, to do this, but then she just, she just can't. And she really breaks down in this moment. She says Saru is her family and she doesn't want to lose him. And on the topic of of losing, I think I myself often actually lose sight of Burnham's own story in part because there's just so much to it. But Burnham is like triply an orphan. She lost her parents who were brutalized in front of her. She's alienated from her foster brother. And and even last episode, right, her foster mother was pretty displeased with her and they didn't leave on the the best of terms. She's lost George O, which is something she thinks is her fault. And now she's going to lose Saru on top of it. So yeah, how much more of this can Burnham really take? I mean, you forgot one. She lost Ash. Right. It's so much. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I don't I don't know how I mean, they don't even seem to have a counselor on this ship. Right. So so I don't know how she's dealing with this. Well, Saru has some wisdom to impart before he dies, which is that he regrets having left Kaminar without ever really saying goodbye to his sister, Serana. And it's, it's clear that he misses her. And I think your reading of this room as being kind of a tribute to her is, is spot on. And so his dying request to Burnham is to, to make her promise to do whatever it's going to take to mend things with Spock. And again, we just see Saru here trying to use his last moments to leave the world a better place than, than, than it was when he got here. Uh, and this is going to come back. But right now, Burnham, you know, she's, she's gotten maybe, I guess, kind of a pep talk. She's taken this as kind of a pep talk. So now she is really going to do the thing that her friend, this person she thinks of as family, is asking her to do. So she's really going to cut off Saru's threat ganglia now, which is what will kill him. And she goes to do it. But then they just fall out on their own. And Saru's not dead. So we go to sickbay to get a verdict from Dr. Pollard about what's happening here. And Saru checks out. He's perfectly alive, perfectly healthy, not going to die. And he feels great. And it's in this moment that he realizes that everything that he has believed about the Vaharai and the great balance between the Kelpians and the Ba'ul is just a lie. That this condition is not ever going to be fatal to Kelpians. That's all nonsense that's been used to manipulate his species, to make them the the prey, or really the, the cattle for the Ba'ul. And he's upset about it. And it seems like we're setting up to get more about this in the future. And I really hope we do. I want to I want to learn more about this planet and I want this story. Yeah, we're setting up to go break the prime directive, right? Like here's our excuse as to why it's okay. Like, oh, I was fine following the prime directive for Jojo's reason, but uh now I have another reason and I'm going to do it anyway. I also hope we get that episode um, you know, to heck with the prime directive nonsense. But uh what is so amazing here is that Saru is the fear that he has been living with has been lifted from him, right? Fear is his defining trait. And now it is no longer. And he says that he feels powerful. And that's because he's not overcome with this fear. He has a little bit of a glimpse into what it might look to 
what it might be like to to live without that fear and that dread and uh, that anticipation of death kind of always around the corner. And so this is, Glenn, where I will say how I read this, which is that I, I feel like it's just that Saru went through puberty. No, I think that's exactly right. I just was wondering if if the lights were something that could be used to induce it in people kind of artificially. I think I think you've pointed out that that's, that's a ridiculous idea, but that was that was what I was saying. But yes, I think you're absolutely right. This is basically just puberty uh, in some some kind of weird way where you go through it and then you lose this, this fear response that you have that maybe is like a great response to have when you're a vulnerable child, but now you can go be an adult and not have this fear. It's a real interesting physiology and I, I want to know more about it. I know it's also bonkers to think about, you know, what what would the world look like if we didn't know what was next in human maturation after puberty? If we thought puberty was like the end of the line, how much would we not know about humans, right? Like our brain doesn't even fully develop until we're 25. If we didn't know that, what would we think of ourselves and how would our society be built? It's it's kind of a crazy question, but but really fun. I also really hope now I, I don't know if we're going to get some sort of like uh, Harry Potter dark arts teacher thing with Discovery where we have a, a new captain every year. But this definitely gave me another inkling that maybe Saru is going to get to be captain. Well, we've got one more scene to, to do to wrap up the Saru and Sphere storyline here, which is uh, to visit Pike in his ready room, where Pike is taking a look at what kind of data they downloaded from the Sphere. And we basically walk in on him listening to a narrative of some war between people we've more or less never heard of before, uh, which I think is pretty cool. And he compares this to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I have to say, I hope that one of the new Trek shows in development is just going to be about scholars going through all of this information. Like just people in a library reading these stories. Uh, yeah, hopefully there'd be less death in that show. I don't know. Don't pretend like you've never been in an academic library. You know how dangerous it is in there. <laughs> so many sword fights. <laughs> well, Burnham has also been looking through the, the stuff that they got from the sphere. And she's actually found that there's a way to track Spock. So they didn't actually have to give up anything in order to do the right thing for the sphere. But Burnham is also here because she has changed her mind about Spock and she wants to, she does now want to see him when they catch up to his shuttle, which maybe will be next episode. But this, this arc, the conclusion of this emotional arc for Burnham brings us to a close of the Saru and Sphere story. So uh, I think let's go catch up with Tilly now. So Stamets' plan to talk to the May blob is not working because they need a cortical implant uh, to put into Tilly's brain. But because the ship still is not working at this point, they don't actually have any way to put one into her brain except for a drill that Jet Reno has with her. So Stamets has a surprisingly good bedside manner. He doesn't have any whiskey or like anesthetic, I guess. Uh, but he gets Tilly to sing a song while he prepares to drill a hole in her head. And I really liked their little cover of Bowie's Space Oddity here. And I would be pretty into an acapella cover album from the Discovery cast if that's a thing that we can get to happen. So they get the implant into Tilly's brain and now they're able to talk to the May blob and May is a member of the Jossep species. This species lives in the mycelial network, which was 
totally awesome place to live until Stamets started flying his spaceship through their home and destroying their ecosystem. And Stamets is pretty horrified by the repercussions of his actions. And, and that's why this really mattered that he gave this monologue earlier. And he promises to stop doing this, to stop using the spore drive if May will let Tilly go. But May says, I can't. I have other plans for Tilly. And then she snarls and breaks free from her constraints. And at this point, Tilly is basically being possessed by a demon. And the May blob now even like grows and swallows her up. I was really shocked by this turn of events. Although Reno and Stamets, they're able to pretty easily use a blowtorch to get Tilly out of the the, the blob. And Stamets is just going to go close the door to the mycelial network forever, I, I guess, sort of hoping that that will appease the May blob. But it doesn't work, right? This is where the, the May blob opens up and emits these spores that make everyone have, you know, essentially a, a mushroom trip. And this was this did look really cool. This was filmed in a really cool way. But when Stamets and Reno come out of this, they discover that the, the May blob has swallowed up Tilly again. I really don't have any inklings as to what the blob wants. I, I guess simplistically the blob might want revenge, but it seems like something else is going on here. And because we've closed the door of like, oh, crap, I didn't know I was completely destroying your ecosystem. I'll stop. I promise. You know, and that wasn't good enough. Something real ominous is happening here. And, and I'm excited to get more of it. And I'm extra excited that I don't know what's coming next. Right. And the episode ends with the real sense that Tilly is in some serious business danger here. I, I mean, I couldn't believe that that actually was the end of the episode. It, it seemed really jarring. So, um, you know, I'm not looking forward to, you know, the next six days of having to, to wait for the next episode, but I'm excited <laughs> for the next episode. Yeah, well, I think we're going to get some cool, not only like Katabasis turning to the underworld stuff here, but some nice Alice in Wonderland, like, you know, down the rabbit hole we go into the mycelial network, uh, which is, you know, what that final shot of Stamets peering into the May blob uh, reminded me of, uh, that we're going to fall down that hole and have some weird things to eat and drink. Right. It seems like it might be a literal hole that you're going to actually crawl into the blob and wind up in the mycelial network or something like that, and that this, this form has been just kind of some sort of dimension bending shell or something. I mean, who knows? It can do whatever it wants, as you pointed out. So we'll 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 just have to find out. But you know, Glenn, let's let's get away from the hellmouth and get away from engineering for a second. Um, depending, I guess, on how you answer this question, but it is time for your first smooch Mary Kill of season two. And I just have to tell you, back off. Jet Reno is mine. <laughs> <laughs> she may not be available anymore by the time that we're done with this. I don't like what you're saying. <laughs> I already don't like it. But let's start with smooching. Who are you going to smooch? Well, I think the smooching is going to be pretty obvious for anyone who knows me. I, I have to pick number one here. I mean, bur I burgers it. and habanero sauce. She had me at the burger and then really the habanero sauce. I mean, that that really cinched it for me. But just to be clear, uh, I, I, though I do want to smooch number one, it is not quite Hoshisato level, but it, it's good. It's good. I will never understand your love for Hoshi Glenn. I really, really won't. Enchiladas, languages. 
I know, I know. Somehow she still wasn't interesting to me, even <laughs> despite all of our shared interests. Um, but that's fine. It's good we won't, you know, ruin our friendship over that one. Yeah, I saw this coming. I saw number one as your smooch pick. Uh, that makes sense. She is just going to town with that habanero sauce. Yes, it, it, it was awesome. It was it was a no-brainer for me. The Mary was a little bit more difficult for me, uh, but I've actually decided that I want to marry the sphere. <laughs> I don't know how we're going to make it work since I need to breathe and stuff, but uh, I think the sphere will have some great stories and it certainly <laughs> seemed to have compassion right at the at the end. Uh, and, I, you know, I think we could have some some time together. I mean, you know, the sphere is not going to age its lifespan. It turns out is 100,000 years. Mine is like 80 or something. But, uh, you know, it will be a life well spent for me, I think. I think you're going to redefine long distance relationship. It's not that you're like necessarily, you know, one of you's in California and the others in New York. It's like, oh, I have to be in some sort of vessel far away from you because I'll burn up and die. Oh, okay, Glenn. Well, now I don't know what's coming. So who who are you going to kill? Well, I think this one is actually fairly obvious. And I'm not killing Jet Reno, even though I, I just threatened to do exactly that. Not that this is like a draft that doesn't take her off the board for next time for you. Uh, but I think the obvious answer here is the May Blob, right? She's clearly up to no good. And she's hurting Tilly. And I just cannot have anyone around who's going to hurt Tilly. Yeah, okay. You know, we do have a pretty strong re- track record here at Lower Decks of killing the villain. Uh, so so that makes sense. Maybe that makes us predictable and uninteresting. But uh, that makes sense to me. I also don't know, though, if, if killing the Mayblob is really going to solve anything. Uh, I have a feeling the Mayblob can easily come back to life. Right. How do you kill something that's actually from the underworld? Right. Is a, is a good question. Look, I'm just trying to do some science here. I'm trying to take one for the team. <laughs> that's fine. I'll allow it. Well, now that I have said cheeseburger and habanero sauce about 20 times in the last 90 seconds, I think it's time for me to go have some dinner. So that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Valerie Hoagland. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And please come over to the site and consider supporting us on our Patreon network. It keeps us going. It means a lot. And it's going to help us achieve some pretty cool goals. Yeah, I really do hope that we are going to be able to have the online video chat at the end of the season. It would be super fun. There's so much to talk about. And until we get to that point, until we get to the end of the the season, uh, please come on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you think is going to happen next if uh, people are going into the underworld and trying to bring back their loved ones. And if you happen to speak any of the languages that we got in that Tower of Babel bridge scene and can comment on how well that that language was handled, uh, we'd love to know about that too we're big language nerds over here yeah surprise surprise (laughs) but until then stay spacey